So 1 Corinthians 15 is, I got a feeling, is going to show up sometime today. I want to first say a belated but nevertheless sincere and heartfelt thanks to the veterans. Thank you for your service, for your sacrifice. A few days late on that, but I'm very grateful and realize that we're here and we're free because of you guys, and because of many who left body and soul across battlefields in this world today and in history. Thank God for the greatest warrior of all, the King of Kings, the Lord of the Armies, our great Commander-in-Chief, our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are soldiers in his army, and I thank all of you for your constant and faithful service to him. He has recruited us, and it's a matter of staying in rank now and watching your six, your six by six, fully armed, because we're living in a time when the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, is being severely challenged by the message we preach, and that age does not take kindly to our message. And so we're grateful for constant prayers. And as I thought this morning, there are many in our church, many in our assembly, many who are not with us face to face today, some of whom are facing serious health challenges. And so my prayer for them is healing grace. And I've been praying a lot of that lately for the Lord, our healer, to dispense his healing grace in many today. Hebrews chapter 8, we see Jesus, a heavenly priest, is the message today. This morning in my editing, I had to cut loose three or four train cars from what I had on the tracks because it's developing something that I've never seen before. And I thought I'd be looking mostly looking back at some of the things that God has given to us, but I'm looking forward to some of the greatest things he has yet to reveal to this assembly. And they have to do with cosmology, the study of the cosmos, and as it connects with the great salvation that we have embodied in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And cosmogenesis also, the genesis of the cosmos, how it occurred and how the foundation of the world where the lamb was slain is the moment of creation. And that moment of creation is the moment of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, the moment when he said to Telestai, and we're going to see the connection there. There's a great connection there that I don't think I've ever heard explored, but it's too big to even begin to introduce now. So I had to cut loose three or four train cars, and I'm giving you something that's very important as a lead-in to these things, but I'm expecting the greatest illuminations that Tetelestai Phalanx has ever had in upcoming days. Hebrews 8, so far we have this translation. Now the sum of what we're saying is this. We have an archpriest who is of such significance that he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a temple servant in the holy places of the true tent, the one pitched by the Lord, not man. You see, every archpriest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this priest also have something to offer. That something to offer is what takes us all the way to Hebrews 10.18 and even beyond that because he offered himself. Hebrews 8.4, in fact, if he were on earth, he wouldn't even be a priest. And that's where I want to take off today. If he were on earth, he wouldn't even be a priest. We've already seen that Jesus was not qualified for the Levitical priesthood because he wasn't born of the tribe of Levi, but of Judah, the royal tribe. 
Now, however, we have to deal with this fact. If Jesus were an earthly priest, one of the Levitical order, the sacrifices he would offer would be like theirs, a mere copy and shadow of heavenly things. Being offered according to the law, they would be effective only in a ritual sense, only in a temporary sense, in a transient sense, only in ritual purification, and not in the decisive purgation of the conscience, where the conscience is purified from the unresolved guilt that stunts the spiritual growth of so many. But the blood of Christ does that. It purifies the conscience from dead works, from works we think we have to do to please God, from works that we think we have to do to cancel the bad works we've done, the evil we've done. And there's no amount of works we can stack up that can balance the scales. The cross balanced the scales. And by the cross, we are renewed and saved, forgiven and cleansed. On a much broader scale, Jesus wouldn't be a priest if he were on earth because he was not even of earthly origin, if we can use that word origin. Adam, the first man, was of the earth and was earthy, earthy, made of dust, made of the earth, and earthly. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 47, and we'll get there. Aaron, the first archpriest of Israel, descended from Adam, the first representative man, who was of earthly origin, an earthly man. Jesus, too, descended from Adam, the first representative man, as far as his human nature, which he assumed in his incarnation. But very unlike the first man, Adam, and the archpriest, Aaron, Jesus the Christ, the second representative man, is from heaven. No man ever ascended to heaven, that is, on his own merits, except for the Son of Man, who first descended. And that son of man who first descended was lifted up on the earth, from the earth. As Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man is lifted up. And if he's lifted up, and he was, he will draw all to himself. Draw all judgment to himself that we deserved. Draw all people to himself. Draw all the cosmos to himself so that he could comprise the whole of the cosmos. The lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world was indeed slain at that moment. It's what the ancient philosophers called the nunc stans, the now that stands. It's an eternal now. It's an instantaneous now. It's the tiniest of pinpoints that contains the whole of reality. It's the now that stands. And God, through whom all things came into being and came into existence and came into existence that once did not exist before, God, through whom all things came into existence, considered it right that the founder of our salvation suffer to bring us into glory. And it's the suffering of the founder of our salvation that is the act of creation. It is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world because the lamb being slain is the moment of the creation of the cosmos. In the beginning, in RK, God made the heavens and the earth. That isn't a moment in time. That is the nunc stans. That's what Dante Alighieri called the punta della di stello. 
the pivot point, the point of eternity. It's what Wolfgang Smith called the cosmogenetic act. The cosmogenetic act. Jesus Christ and him crucified is not a temporal reality only. It's that very point in which all of the cosmos was created. In the beginning isn't a moment in time. It's an everlasting eternal moment in which God acted instantaneously. The debate of creationism and all that's going on today misses the whole point that God created in an instantaneous act which Wolfgang Smith rightly calls vertical causation. And I'm giving away some of what is coming up. But the moment of the founding of the foundation or the creation of the universe is one with the moment of the suffering founder of our salvation. And so the act that brought all of the universe into being is an act of God who is love. It is an act of supreme, incomprehensible love that is demonstrated and revealed in Jesus Christ and him crucified. I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified because Jesus Christ and him crucified is the moment of the creation of all things and the new creation of all things for eternal life. NRK is the first two words in the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Christ. For Jesus himself said, I am the Arche. He is the Arche. He is the beginning in which God made all things. And again, from the foundation of the world, the founder of our salvation suffered to bring about all of creation. And all of creation is completed not in the act of an old corrupted creation, but in the act of a brand new creation in which the second man, Adam, the second Adam removed the sin from every level of reality, the sin that came in with the first representative man. The first representative man is a microcosm, a miniature cosmos. And when he sinned, sinned entered the cosmos. The second man, Christ Jesus, the son of man, is a microcosm. In him is all the cosmos. And he took away the sin of the cosmos. Every level of reality needed to be purified, including the heavens. If you read Hebrews 9.23, even the heavens required purification from sacrifices that are greater than these, the sacrifices offered by the Levitical priests. What am I doing so far in this message? Trying to articulate something that I cannot articulate and laying down a gauntlet for this evil age to hear the announcement. And he that inhabits eternity is not only transcendent above all, but he's imminent within all. And he inhabits eternity in a high and lofty place, transcendent above all, but he also inhabits the crushed and oppressed soul of every person. And he, next to him is one who was crushed for our iniquities, punished to secure our peace, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So those are hints. Those are just hints. They're supposed to be glistening hints of a, of a coming insight. I found one thing to be true. Insight sometimes, the greatest insights come about, in the words of Bernard Lonergan, through, they have a slow and bloody entrance. They do not come with a lack of adversity. They do not come with a lack of resistance. They do not come painlessly. They come not only through study, not only through arduous study, but through long, patient, arduous 
study where the word of God is the number one priority of the soul. They come through a soul that's pushed through an eye of a needle. They come in a slow and bloody entrance. They come against adversity. They come against a zeitgeist, a whole world system that is anti-life, anti-truth, and above all, anti-grace, anti-love. And so pray that these insights make their entrance and that they light up every soul. I love Paul's insight and how he exegetes the scripture. In Genesis 1-3, when God said, let there be light, Paul, the rabbi, exegetes this. He's seen Jesus Christ, though. He's seen that light emanating from the face of the crucified Christ. He knows that was the moment of creation in the crucified Christ. He who said light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the glory of the knowledge of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.6 is Paul's exegesis of Genesis 1.3. My exegesis of Genesis 1.1 is 1 Corinthians 2.2. I determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified as the cosmogenetic act, as the act that brought the cosmos into existence. It came through a craftsman who suffered incomprehensibly to bring its beauty, its elegance, its glory, its eternal beauty into being. And so that's what's coming up. That's what's ahead of us. This, unlike this first man, Adam, through whom sin came and death through whom death passed upon the whole of the human race into all the cosmos, unlike that first man, and unlike that first archpriest Aaron, Jesus the Christ, the second representative man, is from heaven. Of him it is said, look, he's coming with clouds. not only because he's the son of man, as Matthew 26, 64 says, and Revelation 1, 7 says, but because he is the man from heaven. As the scripture says, the first man, that means the first inclusive representative man, the first microcosm, the first universe in a single anthropos, the first man speaks of a secondary reality. Matthew Pajot, and thanks to Lou, I've read this book and I'm reading this. Matthew Pajot, in his book called The Language of Creation, wrote, since Adam is a cosmic mediator between heaven and earth, his individual sin in the garden gradually spread to all levels of reality. And of course, the second Adam speaks of a primary reality. He is the lamb who took away the sin of the cosmos, reverses the entropy that leads to death, takes away sin which leads to death, the second man took away the sin that spread to all levels of reality, even the heavens. Read it in Hebrews 9.23. Even the heavens, which also needed to be purified, but not by sacrifices of animals, not by the shadow sacrifices and the typical transient sacrifices that were only ritual, but by sacrifices that are better than these, Sacrifices, plural, that are better than these is all, are all summed up in the one sacrifice, the something to offer that our great archpriest has offered. The foundation of the world and the crucifixion of the Christ are one cosmogenetic act. 
cosmogenesis, the coming into being of the cosmos, the universe, the new universe. And it's not completed till it's new. And the act that completes the creation is an act of redemption. All of this is going to come into play. The second man took away the sin that spread to all levels of reality, even the heavens. And to do that, he himself had to become sin. That is incomprehensible. So that we would become the righteousness of God in him. The second man, Jesus Christ, then speaks of the primary reality. Reality is, finally, Jesus. The heavenly is the ultimately real. The earthly is the secondarily real. And the Hebrews author deals with both tiers of reality, the heavenly and the earthly. So 1 Corinthians 15, 48 says this, and it's my translation. As he who is of the dust, so are those who are of the dust. As the heavenly man, so are those who are heavenly. The New Jerusalem Bible conveys a principle brought out here in 1 Corinthians 15, 48. The earthly man is the pattern for earthly people, the heavenly man for heavenly ones. The heavenly ones are the new covenant community. Now, as we have borne the image of the man made of dust, so we will also bear the image of the man from heaven. You see, I'm going further than where we usually go in Hebrews 8.4. If he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. And he's not only of the earth because he wasn't descended from Levi. He is not of the earth because he is not from the earth. He is from the heavens. The man from heaven is the same anthropic man. There was a divine being seated upon a glorious throne on a platform held up by four living beings called angels. This, on this great throne was one with the form of anthropos anothen, a man above, a transcendent man. Daniel knows it's the son of man. We know it's the man from heaven. Jesus Christ, who became flesh, already had the form of a man above. He already had the anthropic form. God already had the anthropic form, the form of a man, before he took on our kind of humanity, our kind of flesh, our kind of weakness. The form of a man above in Ezekiel 1, to 28, is Jesus Christ, the Archpriest. To bear his image is to bear the image of the great archpriest and thus to be priests. You're a priest. You say you're saying that laughing. Yeah, I am. This is even funnier. I'm a priest. We're priests. We are a kingdom of priests because we have been freed from our sins by his blood. Every time the blood of Jesus Christ is mentioned, it is in connection with the metaphor of the lamb, the archetype of all sacrifice. The lamb of God. We were freed from our sins and he constituted us to be a kingdom of priests to God his father. Revelation 1.6. So we are a royal priesthood according to 1 Peter 2.9. To bear the image of the heavenly man is to be priests. To bear the image of the royal man is to be royalty and to reign in life by one Jesus Christ in Romans 5.17. To bear the image of our great archpriest is to be priests, representatives of this dying world to the God of all grace. We are the household over which is a great arch priest. That's us. Hebrews 10, 21. A household. A dynasty of priests under the great arch priests. 
the archpriest Jesus Christ. Now, even if this man from heaven were on earth, and even if he were of earthly origin, he would still not be a priest like Aaron and Aaron's sons because Aaron became a priest by order of the law. He and his sons were of the tribe of Levi, and Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. The sons of Aaron became priests according to earthly, physical descent. Jesus, the man from heaven, is a priest in heaven where he entered the heavenly sanctuary with his own blood. We ask, when exactly did Jesus become a priest? And we try to find points in history. Bulgakov says it happened at the Transfiguration. Some say he became a priest when at age 30 he was baptized by John, as the priests in the Old Testament are baptized in water before they enter into their priesthood. Some say he became a priest in the moment of incarnation. But I think we have to consider that his priesthood being eternal, he became a priest or is a priest in the nunc stans, the now that stands, the eternal instant, the eternal moment. You are a priest forever. We have to determine a lot of things from that standpoint of the now that stands, the eternal present, the now. This eternal present coexists with time, but it isn't time. It transcends time but it's imminent within time as well as transcendent above time. And if we don't start to think this way, we can say all day we know the Bible, but we don't know the Bible. And so these are lead-ins to us coming to the place where we truly can focus on things which are eternal, and not transient, because that's going to be your sanity in the days to come. And so the sons of Aaron became priests according to earthly physical descent. Jesus, the man from heaven, is a priest in heaven where he entered the heavenly sanctuary with his own blood. The sprinkled blood, think of it, which speaks more eloquently than that of Abel, Abel's blood. Did Abel's blood speak? On one level it did because God heard it. The voice of your brother's blood is speaking to me. Very loudly, God said, speaking loudly to me. God hears voices. He hears the, hears the groans of a generation of slaves in Egypt. I've heard their groans. You don't have to pray. You can groan. Most of our prayers are groans that we can't really articulate anyways. The Holy Spirit has to make intercession for us with groans that are inarticulable. I used to be frustrated in my prayer because I always went to a place where I couldn't articulate what I wanted for the person I was praying for. It was too, it was too great and too intense. So now I just realize that I did pray that prayer through the Holy Spirit. He articulated that which is inarticulable in the depth of my heart for them, for you. And this is what Jesus' presence does. If the blood of Abel who was slain by Cain, cried out to God from the ground. How much more do you think the blood of Jesus cries out to the Father from the mercy seat in heaven? What does it call for God to do? What did it call for God to do in Cain's case? Some would say, bring vengeance on Cain. No, bring mercy to Cain. He's a perpetrator. He has no righteousness. His need is righteousness. Abel was the victim. His need is justice. He doesn't have justice for the crime perpetrated against him. Cain doesn't need vengeance. Cain needs righteousness. He lacks righteousness. In his unrighteousness, he slew 
or murdered his brother. He needs righteousness. All that's brought up in brought out in the nunc stans, the punta dello di stello, the pivot point of all things. And so the father hears strange voices. Doesn't make him crazy, makes him God. The sprinkled blood, poets hear voices that no one else hears. That's why they are poets. Prophets hear voices that no one else hears. That's why they're prophets. The Bible authors hear voices that no one else hears, and you have to have ears to hear those voices, or you'll misinterpret what they're saying. And that's pretty much what we could define most messages that are being proclaimed today from pulpits, a misunderstanding of what the prophets have said, a misunderstanding of the metaphorical language into a false reality and a fake reality of a heaven and hell reality. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Just as a prodigy has an ear to hear, music, we have to have a hear, an ear to hear the voice of God in the scripture. It's a voice of unrestricted love. It's a voice of incomprehensible grace and mercy. It's a voice of judgment, but the judgment is the pronouncement of a transformation by mercy. If the blood of Abel cried out to God for mercy, how much more does the blood of Jesus cry out? Not for mercy for Cain, but mercy for all. The sprinkled blood is not found spattered against the mercy seat in an earthly tent. As wonderful as an aid uh, that is of what has happened here, the sprinkled blood is not found spattered against the mercy seat in an earthly tent or in the temple of the earthly Jerusalem, the sprinkled blood is found in the heavenly city, Jerusalem. In the true tent, pitched by the Lord, not man. You want to make it metaphorical? Don't make it too metaphorical. You want to make it material? Don't make it too material. Heaven has its own immaterial literality. Heaven has its own materiality. Otherwise, why did Jesus go there in a body? So remember Hebrews 12, 22. Let's go there. It's reminiscent of the enthronement scene in Revelation. Revelation 4 and 5 is reflected. That throne scene is reflected or corresponds to Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. And then we'll get back to a voice in a moment before we close. More and more the Holy Spirit is saying to me, your messages have to be poetry, so follow me step by step. So I follow him step by step. I'm a helpless person. I, I, I don't know what to do. I, I'm in this world. I don't know what to do in this world. So I have to wait until I hear what next baby step to take. And you take the baby step and you realize, wow, that's going to lead somewhere. And you wait. And other people around you say, you should do this. You should do this. You should do this. You must do this. You have to act this way. You have to do this. This is what any other sane person would do. And I would say, well, there you lost me. <laughs> and this still small voice keeps saying, wait on me, wait on me. Wait on me. And then out of the blue, he'll, he'll give a little direction. Go, oh, take this little step here. Do it. Say this thing. Really? Say, and you say it and you do it. And then a whole vista opens up of what to do next. Because you waited on him. Getting more like that. A little bit more like that every day, but. Hebrews 12, 22 says, You have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God. Did you think when you came here 
that you were coming to a church in New Kensington? No, you came to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. I'm not saying that's us or that's this building. I'm just saying we really have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels in celebratory assembly, partying, we could say. Millions, uncountable angels, partying. And to the community of the firstborn, that's the new covenant community of the firstborn, that's Christ Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, registered in heaven, and to the God, to God, listen how this sense of this verse goes, to God, the justifying judge. I love how you're paying attention, Judy. Good to see you. The justifying judge. God, the justifying judge. God, the judge of all. God is the judge of all. But what does God, the judge of all, do? He justifies all. He justifies the ungodly in Romans 4, 5. God justifies the ungodly. God, who is the judge, only judges in an act of justification because he acted once in an act of condemnation when his son became sin. The justifying judge of all. You've come to the justifying judge of all. And to the spirits of justified people made complete. That doesn't just mean that people are flitting around heaven like spirits. A spirit made complete is a very solid being. It's a human being, body, soul, and spirit. And most of all, verse 24, to the mediator of a new covenant, Jesus, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks more eloquently than that of Abel. Cain, your brother's blood is speaking to me from the ground where it was shed. All of humanity, your elder brother, Jesus' blood, for whom we are all responsible for his death. What makes me different from Cain? Nothing. I disagree. If you're angry with your brother, you murdered your brother. What are you going to do about that? You hate your brother? You're a murderer. What makes you different from Cain? Your brother, Jesus, your elder brother, for whom in one sense we're all responsible for his death. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and that's everybody cries out to me from heaven. What's it saying to you, Father? It's saying mercy rejoices over judgment. It's saying that I am love as to my essence. My act, capital A-C-T, is love. The act of my essence is love. It is a single instantaneous act. It is the act of cosmogenesis. The whole universe came into being by an act of my infinite love. An act of God who is love. Whose act is love. It came into being in the crucified Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's not just an act that happened in the center of history. That's the act that brought in the cosmos and creation itself. It is an act of infinite, incomprehensible unimaginable love. And so we can't even imagine the finished product of the new heavens and the new earth. The enthroned God says, look, I'm making all things new. What's the throne? The cross. Who's the enthroned one? The lamb. Look, I'm making all things new. What? In what moment did you make all things new? In the instantaneous act of cosmogenesis when I said, to tell us die. It's done.
What's done? God being all in all, it's the cosmogenetic instantaneous act of vertical causation, not horizontal causation. You know what this message does? Unravels and undoes all of the fake philosophy and the fake scientism, not science. Science and Christianity are very close friends. I'm talking about a materialistic, atheistic scientism, scientism that idiots like Stephen Hawking like to put together saying we no longer need the God hypothesis, the God delusion like the idiot Dawkins and other people have said. I'm talking about something that undoes the zeitgeist itself, the whole world system, the whole evil. You, you call this age an age. The Bible calls it a present evil age and even says we have to be delivered from it. This is the message that delivers you from it. Why are people going nuts and acting in animal packs now? And why are there, is there such division? Because this has been happening ever since a certain macroevolutionary theory came in. And with it, a theory of psychotherapy that came in with Freud that not only denied God, but brought in an occult thing called transference. And not only that, but Carl Jung, who glorified and deified the collective unconsciousness of man and ruled out God. In an age called the Enlightenment, which is the most ironically named era of human history ever. Because it blocked the light that shines in the face of Jesus Christ into people's hearts. This insight, these insights, and the one to come are the very light that God says, let light shine into the darkness of this zeitgeist to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. It's always shining there, but it's been blocked by the God of this age and his students who brought forth the theory of macroevolution who brought forth the theory of a neo-Gnosticism through Carl Jung and others, whom I studied in college as I became more and more desperate the more and more I studied religion and philosophy at the University of Vermont, and was mocked in a class one time. In fact, the class broke up because I gave my testimony of my confrontation with reality in Jesus Christ. The professor couldn't handle it. He said, let's go to the chicken bone. Everybody in the class. The chicken bone was a bar in downtown Burlington, Vermont. I wasn't invited. It blew apart his whole phenomenology, which he was teaching. He loved the word phenomenology. Everything is a phenomena, including, he said, including Jesus Christ, who is a phenomena of the Redeemer myth. Really? How about He's reality. Oh, no, you just killed the class. Let's go. Let's go have a few pitchers of beer. Without him, the cosmos or the present evil agent, Jung actually said this. He had a father that went into an insane asylum. His father was a pastor. He had eight uncles who were pastors. He hated Jesus Christ because of how they represented him. And so he developed a neo-Gnosticism which enthroned Satan as the fourth member of the Trinity. And next to Satan stood, of course, Carl Gustav Jung and the collective unconsciousness of man. And that gave birth to almost every other weirdness that you see in our world today. It's the zeitgeist. It was even Carl Jung who said the zeitgeist doesn't take kindly to being trifled with. Because when he started down his road, he actually was kicking against the pricks of the present age. No pun intended. The pricks of the present age happen to be the very... <laughs> let's, let's call them scholars. But you realize that this... There, there is an age, and it doesn't take kindly because it's personal. You know why? Because there is one who is called the prince of the power of the air, 
who is ruling over the children of disobedience, and they are also called the sons of wrath. They get angry when you ruffle their philosophies. So that's where we're going to. We're going to describe the zeitgeist. We're going to describe what the Germans called the Weltanschauung, which is a better word than worldview, because it, it means a little more, but it means worldview, the worldview. The present current worldview that came on in the wake of Darwin, in the wake of Freud, in the wake of Rene Descartes, who started it all, I think therefore I am, which was a, brought into the world a schizoid perception. And we're going to hit that too. It's a bifurcation of the mind. He actually created a philosophical schizoid philosophy, Rene Descartes. Because basically what he said is reality is what you perceive in here. It's not out there. That's, not, that's an illusory thing out there. That's not real. Well, if it isn't real, then what, what does it matter if I do this to them? If it's all in here, all perception, it's a bifurcation. All perception is in, I think, therefore I am. In other words, I am by what I perceive. What reality is, is what I perceive. Not, it's not really out there. That's not real. Think about that for a while and see if it makes you healthy, mentally healthy. Cartesian philosophy. Cartesian bifurcationism is what it's called in fancy language. But it means that's where a lot of this stuff started. And then it moved into areas like astronomy. It moved into areas like cosmology and cosmogeny. Cosmogeny is the study of the genesis or the origin, the genesis or the origin of the universe. So we're talking really here about a return to sanity, and a return to sanity is a return to order, and a return to order is a return to freedom. And so as we close, I want to consider this the blood that speaks more eloquently than that of Abel. Note that the writer says that in the heavenly Jerusalem to which we have come, there is the sprinkled blood of Jesus. It's there. Is there a sign that says, come and see the sprinkled blood of Jesus? I don't know. I don't quite get it. But that's what makes it intriguing. Of course it indicates his atoning death and the efficacy of it and the universality of it and the eternity of it. Of course it does. The sprinkled blood is the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without defect or blemish, says 1 Peter 1.2 and 1.19. It speaks more eloquently than that of Abel, obviously has a metaphorical significance. Let's not take that away. In Genesis 4.10, God said to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood. You ever watch CSI? CSI? CSI Miami, CSI other towns, you know. They ought to make one called CSI New Kensington. But what does the CSI, what does the criminologist do at a crime scene? He listens for the voice of blood. She listens for the voice of the blood of a victim. The blood of Abel had a voice that God heard. And so people study DNA. DNA has a voice. Primarily in criminology, the voice of the DNA of blood. So this writer is talking about a transcendent tier, T-I-E-R, of reality, a, a transcendent stratum of reality. As I've said before, there is a higher heavenly literality, a literality in heaven. Jesus is there with a literal, real, physical, material, human body. It's transcorporeal because it's been trans figured and transformed 
It's deathless, it's, immor it's immortal, it's incorruptible. In fact, it's in a light that can't be approached. We can't approach its, the understanding of it. It's a transcendent corporeality. The prime example of this is the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. So not only does the New Testament recognize strata of reality, planes and levels of it, and a transcendent absolute reality, it also reveals a reconciliation of the heavens and the earth, a harmonization of the heavens and the earth in Jesus Christ, and therefore an eternalization of corporeal creation. A removal of created things precisely by their harmonization with uncreated reality. So a created thing is destroyed only as it becomes harmonized with an uncreated reality. So the soul, the human being, the real being that you are will never be destroyed. Enemies are destroyed. You can do two things. You can be a vengeful person and say, well, I destroyed my enemy today. And you say, well, what'd you do? I killed him. Or you can say, I destroyed my enemy today. Well, what'd you do? I reconciled him. They became my friend. So that's what God did. He reconciled the world to himself. So he destroyed, a, destroyed us. We were his enemies. He destroyed us. How did he do that? By making us his friends. We've received the reconciliation. So there is to be a new heavens and a new earth by a recapitulation of the visible and invisible, the earthly and the heavenly. Recapitulation, incidentally, a word used by Irenaeus to show what Paul called the anakephaleosis, the summing up of the whole cosmos, heavens and earth, visible and invisible, into one in Christ, in Christ Jesus, all one. That's recapitulation. Macroevolution stole the word recapitulation and says if you study the fetus in a womb, you see a forming of a fetus into a higher and higher form. That's what happens in evolution of species, recapitulation. That sounds like a really fancy thing. Well, let's study the fetus and its development. We'll see how humankind in general developed over the course of millennia, millennia, and millions of years. But the only thing is it doesn't work. There's no evidence to support it, no data to support it, no science to support it. So there's only scientism to support it. And scientism is one of the greatest challenges of the, against the spiritual life and against reason, against intelligence, against responsibility, and mostly against love. Paleontology is another thing they like to lean on. Well, look at, let's study the fossils and we'll prove that there was a transformation, a transformation of species from one species into another. And you, you know what? It doesn't work. Paleontology is not evidence at all. The fossil evidence doesn't show it. And there are works done to prove it, but the works don't get the popular press. Why is that? Because the zeitgeist doesn't like to be trifled with. That's why. See what happens to us old men? We whisper. <laughs> That's creepy. That is very creepy. Very creepy indeed. So when you get old, you don't have to spring for a costume on Halloween. Just go as yourself. <laughs> And whisper, trick or treat. Now, mommy, mommy. <laughs> okay. See what the cosmos did to me, and, I, and then I got transformed since. So the, that's why I say the new creation is brought about by instauration, by a crucifixion act, an act of crucifixion, by an act of a identification with a crucified Christ. 
And so he goes on to say, let's just read, we'll close with this, but let's go on to say that the voice on earth and in heaven, that theme, the voice on earth, Abel's blood crying from the earth, the earthly man, Adam, the earthly man, the voice of the blood of Jesus crying out from heaven. Let's follow that idea of the voice as we close. The idea of a voice on earth and in heaven is carried forth in verse 25. But before it is, let's consider this. God hears the groans of the people of Israel who were enslaved and heavily burdened in Egypt. The groans of mothers and parents whose firstborn child were thrown into the Nile River. Sacrifice to the gods of Egypt. The groans were not prayers per se, but God took them as effectual cries for deliverance. You know, he said to Moses, I heard him, I'm going down and I'm delivering these people. And he did. With a spectacular deliverance, one that involved blood the blood of a Passover lamb. How much more does God hear and avenge those martyrs who cry out to him day and night in Luke 18.8, Revelation 6.10? God hears the voices of the unborn about to be dismembered and discarded. God hears their voices. God hears the voices of the politically oppressed, the enslaved in China. some of whom make your sneakers. The murdered Christian martyrs dying today. Those unjustly imprisoned, persecuted, ostracized, and dismissed by the elite sons of this present evil age. He hears the groans and silent weeping of the wife imprisoned in a home by a brutal, controlling nabal of a husband. He hears the voice of sex-trafficked and abused children, of those afflicted with cancer, of the severely disabled. He hears the sighs of the hopeless and depressed, the silent screams of the souls of emotionally tormented people who cannot even express their torment, even to a therapist or to a priest. He hears them. He even hears the voice of those who have perpetrated evil and now live in tormenting and torturous guilt, unresolved guilt. He even hears that cry for deliverance. Most of all, and thank God above all, God hears the eloquent voice of his son's sprinkled blood. the blood by which the eternal redemption of all people was obtained and the forgiveness of all sins, even the most heinous and egregious sins of the perpetrators of evil. So think about it. The voice of your brother cries out, not for vengeance, but for mercy for all. The voice of your brother, Jesus, calls out to me. God creates justice where there is no justice. He gives justice to those who have been unjustly treated, and he will in this world. And he gives righteousness to the unjust perpetrators of injustice. What does the oppressor and the persecutor lack? Righteousness. What does the persecuted lack? Justice. It's saving justice, transforming mercy. And so the idea of a voice on earth and heaven is carried forth in closing in 1225. See to it that you don't refuse the one who is presently speaking. God today, the Holy Spirit speaking to the churches right now. See to it. For if they did not escape when they rejected him, 
when he warned on earth, warns them on earth, even less will we, will we if we turn away from him who warns from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time. That was Mount Sinai, where his voice literally shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. And then in 1227, the PT who wrote Hebrews says, now this phrase, yet once more, clearly indicates the removal of what is shaken, that is, created things, so that what is not shaken may remain. That which is not shaken remains, thank God. Created material things are shaken. And that gets us back to this true tent. This is a true tent in heaven, not of this creation, not made by man. When this was written, it was written to a people who were on the verge of A.D. 70, which was the destruction of the temple and the representation of the sacrifices and the tent of the Old Testament. But that would leave a new temple, which temple you are in union with Christ. And so there is this A.D. 70 connection that we have made and that we will continue to make, the A.D. 70 connection. And a lot of theology in the past 20 years has gravitated toward A.D. 70, and rightly so, because the language Jesus used for cosmic catastrophe, the end of the world, the burning up of the universe and hellfire, all the rest of it, was actually apocalyptic language describing a destructive historical event, event in A.D. 70. But in my experience, A.D. 70 is not the focal point where my attention is drawn. It's rather to the event of A.D. 30. Because there, the one who brought everything into existence through his son considered it to be right that the founder of our salvation would suffer. What created the universe was an act of suffering love. So in the beginning, not a beginning in time, in an everlasting and eternal nunc stands, in a present, ever-present, eternal moment, God created, God made the heavens and the earth. That moment in the foundation of the world is the same moment in which Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. That which makes the universe in its final form, a new creation for eternal life for all things, all beings in the heavens and the earth was the act that happened in an instant at Calvary on a hill in the shape of a skull. What brought about the new creation was not so much an action, but a passion. It was an act that involved an undergoing of suffering by the founder of our salvation. The founder of all universal creation is the same as the founder of universal salvation. For all that was created is redeemed, as Pastor Brown eloquently brought forth in his most recent message. And we thank you, Father, for this reality. We pray that our attention will be focused in a way that brings about health to our soul, stability to our spirits, joy to our whole being. May our experience be truly that of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit as we focus our attention on things, not on the things which are seen all around us, and seen in news broadcasts, but on things which are not seen. And that thing that is not seen is Jesus Christ and him crucified, who in the moment, in the moment, in that very point and pivot of the tiniest instantaneous moment of eternity, created the new heavens and the earth, new earth 
as he took away sin, the sin of the whole world. May we see things we've not seen before. And may we, in seeing Jesus, not know him any longer after the flesh, but may we see and know him after a revelation of him that only you can bring. And we thank you, Father, that you dwell in a high and lofty place, a place of inapproachable light, and yet at the same time you dwell in the crushed spirits, in the oppressed, in the suffering, in the hurting, even in the guilty and in the unforgiven by their own rejection of forgiveness. For you have endured the suffering of the unforgiven, for in your view they are forgiven. Grant us, Father, a vision so that we may truly say we see Jesus. But when we say that, we're saying that we see him in a light that we never imagined we'd see him in. Teach us, Father, that the act of creation is an act of God who is love, infinite love, that the act of creation is one with the lamb being slain from the foundation of the world. Teach us this, because it can't be articulated by man. It has to be a tent pitched by the Lord and not man. In Jesus' name we ask this, amen. Thank you for your attentiveness. Thank you for those who are ably and fantastically teaching in the Wednesday messages, and I'm very grateful for that. I'm grateful for Pastor Phil Henry, who keeps cranking out the five-minute messages, especially the ones on Gehenna versus Hell that are pretty recent. I hope you'll tune into them, and we'll uh, see you again next Sunday.